Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's been a most unusual year, huh? <laughs> I can't help but think about, had this been two years ago, and I looked out at the audience like this, two years ago, mind you, not one, uh, what a tremendous misunderstanding would have been <laughs> created. Our, our security team would be beside themselves, you know, you all in masks, and... <laughs> Misunderstandings, um, they can be really funny. I, I, I had a situation that happened, my wife and I, about three years ago. Really, really sweet lady, used to sit behind my wife pretty regularly, and they got to be kind of friends. And so she decided she was going to give my wife a gift. So um, she had it, you know, wrapped up the best that I can remember. My wife took it home, and, you know, she was sharing with me, very excited about, you know, how this lady gave this gift and how sweet she was. So she pulled it out, you know, and we're looking at it. And we're like, oh, wow, man, it's a crocheted kind of a shawl and a, and a hat, you know, kind of like a, a wintry sort of hat that you ladies look so good in and everything. So um, we're, we're looking at it and thinking how kind it was. And so my wife put it on, and, and my wife has a very normal-sized head. It's not, it's not big at all. So she put it on, but it was really tight on her head. So... I'm looking at it, and I'm like, ah, boy, it's a little small. But my wife wanted to wear it the very next Sunday, you know, the shawl and the hat to show the lady the appreciation that she had for the wonderful gift. So she's trying different ways, and so she kind of cocks it to the side, made it like a little braid because it didn't have to be pulled down. And I'm looking, and I'm like, yeah, that, that, that might work. That, you, know, you could pull that off. And the more I looked, though, I, I said to her, I said, and guys, um, for, for you. you you're young enough that you can benefit from this never say this what I'm about to say to a, to a woman okay I looked at my wife and I said you know I think that might be a little young for you I don't know if you can pull that off never say that never <laughs> and uh, rare occasion she sort of paused and thought maybe she should consider what I'm saying so I believe that was a Saturday. She was going to wear the shawl and the hat the very next Sunday to show the lady how much she appreciated it. But my comment, which never make, never make that comment, um, it paused her and she didn't wear it. So she come, comes into church the next Sunday and she goes up to the dear lady and she says, oh, I'm so thankful. That was so beautiful. And the lady must have read something in my wife's eyes because the lady leaned forward and she said, you know, that was for toilet let me show you a picture this this was what she thought was a hat could you imagine the mortification of the dear lady had my wife come in wearing that Sunday the toilet paper roll hat it was a tank cover it was the shawl the shoulder shawl I thought and the toilet paper roll hat Anyway, misunderstandings. They can be fun. They can be funny. And a lot of times, of course, they're not. When you come to the topic of Easter, uh, here's the first thing I want to say to you. Easter, beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, if you've never considered this before, consider now. Easter is absolutely the most important day in all of existence, in all of the universe. There's, there's no day. Someday, every angel, every human, everybody that's ever lived and breathed is going to know that Easter, what we call Easter today, was the most, is the most important day in all of the history as far as we know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 
But there's an awful lot of misunderstandings around Easter, frankly. We all know this. So for the sake of review, let's, let's just look quickly at the story. It'll appear on the screens, and you know I'll just kind of read it to you. So if we can start. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, it says, After the Sabbath at dawn, that was, that was a Saturday after the Sabbath. It would have been Sunday, the first day of the week. At dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. We'll come back to that. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. That's pretty much the whole Easter story. Now, of course, it's preceded by the brutal crucifixion on Friday, the horrific Saturday of uncertainty for the disciples where they thought the, the most beautiful life that the planet had ever seen was lost and gone. But then that Sunday, everything changed. That meant that, that everything that Jesus had said had credibility but there were still a lot of misunderstandings. A lot of misunderstandings about Easter. There's a lot of misunderstandings present day. I, I'm going to be very honest with you. Some of you are going to think this is awful. But uh, up until age 23, I, I became a follower of Christ at age 23. I knew nothing about God. The only thing I knew about God was what I heard, you know, the people that brought me up talk about. And I thought he was a dam builder, you know, that he was into construction because they always used his name and the word dam uh, with it. And that pretty much was the sum of my religious education. But when... My, when I was a kid, and all the way up to age 23, I kid you not, I thought that Easter was just kind of a, a better form of trick-or-treat, that, you know, you didn't have to go canvassing from door to door. You got the three Bs, man. You got, you got the basket, you got the bunnies, the chocolate bunnies, and if you were a girl, you got the bonnet, you know. And, of course, there was the ever-present egg, the Easter egg. That's it. That's all I knew about it. Today, if we were to consider the message that is given to most of society in various ways, it's just that. It's about chocolate bunnies. It's about an awful lot of marshmallow. And it's about colored eggs. And that's it. None of it ever made sense to me. And perhaps some of you grew up in secularized homes like I did. And you can remember a time where you absolutely did not know the meaning of Easter. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Easter is tremendously trivialized in our society. But it was also misunderstood in the very first century by those that should have understood it best. The religious leaders of Jesus' day who should have known that the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to arrive, who should have known what his life and ministry would be like, who should have known what his sacrificial death would be like, they too were completely in a state of misunderstanding. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Christ that was going to be a political militant force who was going to use brute force, supernatural power, overthrow the nations of the world, particularly the Roman Empire, and set Israel up as the, the most powerful nation on the planet. That's all they cared about. That's all they thought about. Now, they, they seem to skip over all the references in their, their Old Testament to the, the sufferings of the Messiah. 
but there was a lot of misunderstanding in Jesus' day, and that's why they rejected him and ultimately uh, caused him to be crucified because of the charge of blasphemy because he claimed to be, in fact, who he was, God. And then his own disciples. They were not a lot better. Jesus poured three and a half years of his life into these men. They knew him more intimately than anyone ever could. They were with him day and night for the most part for three and a half years. They had listened to all of his teaching. They had seen his miracles. They had seen him open blind eyes, walk on stormy seas, calm a storm with one word. They had seen him raise the dead on three different occasions. They knew that his power was beyond anything the planet had ever seen. They had never seen a life so powerful. They had never seen a life so beautiful. But they too really misunderstood Jesus. Jesus started telling his disciples, you can read this on your own in John's Gospel, chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple for the first time, he tells his disciples that he's going to die, that he's going to die and be resurrected in three days. That was in the first months of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He tells them repeatedly through his ministry toward the end of, Continuously, he tells them. Let me read you one verse that will give you uh, an idea of how specific he was about this. Luke 18, verse 31. It says, Jesus took the 12 aside, and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He goes on. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. That was anybody that was not a Jew was a Gentile. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him insult him spit on him they will flog him and kill him could he have been more clear flog him and kill him on the third day he will rise again and then look at what it says the disciples did not understand this now Jesus told them from the start by the way Jesus is the only human being that's ever lived that predicted their death the exact circumstances of their death and predicted his own resurrection and pulled it off no one no one has ever done such a thing but the disciples didn't understand why didn't they understand uh, they had access to Jesus all the time they, they could question him and they did question him why sometimes when we have something so precious so important so wonderful the thought of ever not having it is just, it's just not allowed into our minds. I believe that they were so thrilled that finally it looked like humanity had a real savior, somebody that could really save us from the things that we are vulnerable to all the time, whether it was disease or demonic activity or death itself. Finally, there was someone on the planet that could bring peace and harmony and love and kindness and gentleness and goodness and life everlasting. And I think they were so thrilled with that they could not imagine ever seeing Jesus actually go to a cross, be spit on, be mocked, and ultimately put to death. They just, they just didn't want to let it in their minds. So they too misunderstood. So there was tremendous misunderstanding about Easter today, a tremendous misunderstanding back in Jesus' day, and even by his own disciples there was tremendous misunderstanding. So that's kind of the what of Easter. And, and I, I wanted to start there because it would not be an unusual thing for there to be someone in here, and if you are, please don't feel badly about this, who really never quite understood Easter, that it's about the death and then the resurrection of this unique life, a life like the planet has never seen before and will never see again until he returns, which he promises to do. 
So it's not about Easter bunnies. It's not about marshmallow peeps. I think peeps are of the devil. I don't know. I, that, that had to be the devil's idea. But it's about Jesus. So that's the what of Easter. But, but let's get into the why. And this is really where I wanted to get to with you in all, all truth. Why? I mean, why did Jesus have to die? Uh, why the resurrection? What, what's the significance of it? What's the meaning? What was it supposed to achieve? Now, I'm going to read. I'm going to take you through four verses, and I'm going to break down these verses each time, and I'm going to emphasize certain parts so that you can see for yourself the truth they're, they're saying. But I want us to, to put on, particularly you that have been church people for a long time, I want you to put on clean eyes and clean ears and look at these scriptures and listen to them as though you were hearing them for the first time. And we're trying to answer the question... What was Jesus' revelation of himself and his revelation particularly in his vulnerable death and then resurrection, what was it supposed to accomplish? What, what, is, what is Easter about? And, and, and I'm going to beg with you again, you that have been followers of Jesus maybe for a lot of years, please try to open your minds too to think that you, you might see something you've never seen before. All right, I'm going to start through these verses. In John's Gospel, this is John the Baptist speaking. It says, the very next day, John saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized. And John, cri John cried out, look, there he is, God's lamb. But what does God's lamb do? He does what? You can read it with me. He takes away. Yeah, you're not used to this, see, because when I'm at home on a flat screen, I can't do this with you. <laughs> you that know me from the past, you know that I won't let you sit idly, <laughs> okay? So let's try it again. He... That was really good, man. That was good. I feel like I'm back now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. To you. He takes away. But, but, but Randy, that, that just means he pays the penalty for our sin. He takes away the sin of the world. But Randy, it means he pays the penalty for it. No, 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 no. It says he takes it away. Taking it away and paying some kind of a penalty I'm reading something into there that's not there. And by the way, when Jesus called, uh, or when John called Jesus the Lamb, what, what would they have been thinking? What would, what would, what would they have heard? You're, you're a Jew living in the first century. And he points and he says, there's the Lamb of God. Those Jews are thinking primarily of the Passover Lamb. That, that Lamb that, was, that God gave instructions in Exodus chapter 12, he told the people when they were about to be delivered from Egypt. After years of slavery and bondage to evil in Egypt, God was about to free them from evil, the power of evil. And then he tells them to do this unusual thing. Take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, without spot, without blemish. And you kill that lamb, and you take its blood, and you put it on the top of your doorpost and on the sides of your doorpost. And then you, you roast the lamb, and you eat it. You, you internalize the lamb. And then when the death angel went over the land and killed the firstborn of all the households, only those that had the blood were protected. And so the power of evil was broken, and, and Pharaoh let the, the people of Israel go free. So when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, they're, they're thinking the Passover lamb. Then, then they're also thinking about the hundreds of thousands of lambs that had been sacrificed pertaining to personal sins. An Israelite in those days, you know, when, when they felt like their sin debt was getting kind of loaded up, they'd get their lamb and they'd go to the temple 
the lamb's throat would be slit they would watch it bleed and die and they knew somehow that put them back into a standing with God and they could get this part and they could feel for a time they could feel comfortable in their conscience for a time that they were forgiven they didn't exactly know how, what it all meant they didn't know why you know God wanted this animal blood or anything like that but they understood it so all that's going through their minds when when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says look there he is there he is he's the Lamb of God but he takes away the sin of the world let me go on to these other verses first John chapter 3 verse 5 and you know now John is writing to followers of Christ and he's assuming that we all know this he says and, and you know without a doubt that Jesus was revealed Jesus was revealed why why were you revealed Jesus to what does it say two words eradicate sins John the Baptist says he's the Lamb of God it's going to take away the sin of the world this says he's brought forth he's revealed to eradicate what does it mean to eradicate sins I'll, I'll let another verse answer that in a minute but eradicate sins and there is no sin in him and so that we know it's talking about present tense sinful activity it goes on to say anyone who continues to live in union with him will not what sin so this is not saying by the way for some of you you know that you don't get the, the wrong idea it's not saying that we are going to be sinless perfect it is saying that every true follower of Christ everyone that has truly put their trust in Christ and become his follower absolutely wants to be free from all sin because we know sin is insanity we know sin is sand in the, the machinery of our inner workings we know that sin is always bad always destructive when we understand it and see it and when we can't understand it and see it we know that God is good and then when he tells us don't do something it's because he loves us and knows what's best and wants what's best and when he tells us to do something likewise we know it's because he loves us wants what's best knows what's best so Jesus was revealed to pay the penalty for our sins is that what that says you, it's okay to say no that's not what it says <laughs> it doesn't but we read that into it to eradicate sins John the Baptist says to take away sins to get rid of sin as an entity as a force on the planet let me go on and read you another one Hebrews 9 26 but now he meaning Jesus now he has appeared first John said he was revealed appeared same idea now he has appeared at the fulfillment of the ages why why did he appear at the fulfillment of the ages why to you read it with me to abolish sin eradicate sin abolish sin take away sin we read to pay for the sin debt that's not what that says and and we cheat ourselves and misunderstand the dynamic power that Easter the suffering of Christ and his resurrection from the dead is meant to bring to us if we read it as though it were just some sort of a transaction a business transaction I had a debt I couldn't pay Jesus paid the debt that is not that is not the whole story that is not what scripture emphasizes ever listen Jesus as the Savior came to rescue us from that which was the gravest danger to us the gravest danger you you're a young dude what, what are you 20 yet how old are you 17 you're 17 the greatest danger you trust me on this man when you get older you'll look back and you'll know this was true the greatest danger you're ever going to face in your life 
is to do things that God says not to do. That I have experienced, and I can tell you it's the greatest danger that we ever face. God, because he loves us, he wanted to destroy the power of sin in our lives. He wanted to rescue us from the thing that we were most in danger of. The Jews, they thought they just needed deliverance from the Roman Empire. But no, no, no. Jesus knew the core problem, the greatest danger that I have, that you have, that every human's ever had, is this thing that we call sin. And sin is simply not living the way that God designed us. We cheat ourselves. We cheat everybody else when we do it. And so Jesus came. He appeared at the fulfillment of the ages to abolish, to put a stop, to, to crush its power, abolish sin once and for all. How? By the what? Sacrifice of himself. Now, how does that work? How does he abolish sin by sacrificing himself? And this is where we start to get into the deep waters. Because if we don't know the big picture of God's story, we can't understand the pieces very well. How many of you have ever done a jigsaw puzzle? Can I see your hands? Jigsaw puzzle? Okay, boring people. Uh, no, 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 I, I, I didn't say that. Uh, no, jigsaw puzzles can be fun. But have you ever tried to do one? You know, one of these big ones, like 500 pieces, but you didn't look at the cover first. Has anybody ever tried to do that? It's, it's, it's really pretty a maddening exercise. But if you look at the cover, even though it may take you a while, hours, days, weeks, who knows, you have a picture in your mind. We as God's people have a hard time keeping the big picture in mind. Big picture, Andy, what are you talking about? The big picture, what is God trying to do? What was he doing from the beginning? When he created image-bearing beings, meaning humans and angels, what was his intent? Was he caught by surprise that we would take this gift of having his image, part of which is having freedom? Was he taken by surprise that we would misuse the freedom? No. He knew before he ever created... Listen, the greatest gift that God could give to any other being was the capacity to experience life on the level that God himself experiences it. It was, it was absolute sacrificial love that caused God to create angels and humans, image-bearing beings, so that we could experience life the way he does. It was the greatest gift he could give, and he gave it knowing we would misuse it. And he knew from the start, before he ever created an angel or a human, he knew what it was going to take to put a stop to this thing, this phenomenon we call sin, which is merely distrust in God that is unconcerned about his will and puts our own will first. That's all it is. We put our own will first because we just think all things considered, man, I'm going to be a whole lot happier if I do this thing my way. God knew that was going to occur, but he knew that the only way it could be finally stopped once it started was he would have to reveal his vulnerability. He would have to become himself a sacrifice, a victim of evil, of sin. And that that was the greatest deterrent that could ever be released in the universe to stop those that can be stopped. Listen, God's not foolish. He knows that, that multitudes of people are going to reject his love forever. He could come to them every day of their life if they lived a thousand years and they're still going to reject him. He knows this. But he also knows that there are some that if he reveals himself vulnerably, sacrificially in Jesus, we see the fullness of God's heart. Not just his power. An almighty being is hard to be around, but an almighty being who's Behavior is always governed by sacrificial love, vulnerable love. That's a being that is safe and we can be drawn to. And he knew that some 
could be reached and some would be brought back and some of us would see sin is crazy doing anything but the will of God is crazy I don't I don't want to even think about anything but God's will that's what Jesus sacrifice was to bring about and if and if you're sitting there and you have thought for years or decades that Jesus is just kind of doing something so that he can make sure that he transport you at the end of your life or transports me at the end of my life to heaven that that's all this is about make sure you get your ticket punched make sure you know you know your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven then you've missed the real gospel you, you've missed its meaning because God wants something far wider and better for that for all of us so you can see the, the emphasis on the abolition, the eradication, the ending of sin. Now, there's one last verse I want to take you to. 1 John chapter 2, it says, He, meaning Jesus, is the unusual word, atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Atoning. This word, atonement, in the Old Testament, it's used 103 times. It's a Hebrew word, kafir. Uh, 71 of the times it is translated in the Old Testament atonement which is a really unusual word we don't go around having conversations with people and using the word atonement and it was a word that when they translated they had a hard time what exactly does it mean seven times it was translated reconcile or reconciliation so what does atonement mean let me try to give you the easiest sense of the word if I can go to the next slide look at it broken down at one mint Listen, when Satan came into the Garden of Eden and he lied to Adam and Eve, he said that, they, you know, he slandered God. He said, oh, God's telling you you'll die if you eat of that tree. That tree won't hurt you. That tree will make you like God yourself. He slandered God. He insinuated God was a liar. Adam and Eve believed it. He says, you can be like God yourself. He's holding back from you. God's uh, repressing you. He needs you to be needy of him is essentially what Satan was saying. And what happened? You've got to get this because this is the root of sin. This is the powerhouse of sin in my life and yours. My first 23 years of my life, I didn't want anything to do with God because I had a hunch. He'd probably want me to stop some things that I was doing, and I wanted to do them. I thought my will was better than his will. I thought my plan was better than his plan. I trusted me more than I trusted him. So at one moment was broken. Adam and Eve, before Satan came, and slandered God they were at one with God he visited them in the garden he was teaching them progressively they loved him he loved them they loved one another they had peace and beauty surrounding them everything was in harmony but it was in harmony because they trusted God and were at one with him they loved his way they loved his will they loved his words that he gave when he would visit but Satan destroyed it all he brought suspicion into their minds about God's character he brought distrust. He brought with that fear. You remember what happens next after Adam and Eve broke trust with God? God comes back in the garden just like he was in the habit of doing to talk with them, to see what's going on with them. And what do they do? Somebody, somebody just tell it out. What, what did Adam and Eve do when God came back in the garden? Just yell it out. They hid. And Adam says, I was afraid. Now he, now he tries to come up with an excuse. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. Well, how, God says, how do you know that? Evidently, they, were, they might have been clothed with, uh, you know, a light field, an energy field, the Shekinah glory, who knows? But all of a sudden, when he broke trust with God, he lost that. And he knows, he knows that God knows and he knows that he's naked. But he was afraid of God. Listen, when Satan slandered God's character to mankind, we were suspicious of God, we distrusted God, we were afraid of God. 
And then on top of it all, we felt guilty and we felt ashamed. These are, these are gigantic barriers between the God that loves us and created us and ourselves. Listen, the barriers are all on my side. They're in me. It's my suspicion of God. It's my distrust of God. It's my fear of God. It's my guilt. It's my shame that makes me uncomfortable with God, that makes me want to avoid Him. And so God has to break through those barriers to bring us back to Himself. And that's why the vulnerable, sacrificial revelation of God's character had to be brought forth into existence into the universe of sentient beings, both angels and humans. No one could know this side of God, his sacrificial love, that he'll let puny beings like ourselves drive nails in his hands and he will refuse to use his power to defend himself because he so wants to show us that we can trust him, that he's the safest person in the universe, that his will is always the best that we can ever do for ourselves. All this, all this is to remove the barriers so that we can once again be at one with God, where now I trust him, I love him, I want his word, I want his will, I want it more than I want my will. I do not trust myself or my will, I do trust his will and his ways. That's all what the sacrificial death of Jesus was meant to bring about. It was meant to bring about a dynamic internal change in the human being that puts their trust in Christ and becomes his follower. And please, never separate this in your mind. You meet people all the time and say, well, yeah, yeah, I've, 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 I got myself straight with the man upstairs. You know, I, I believe he died for my sins. If you are not a follower of Christ, you have no, no ticket to heaven. Jesus says in John 10, 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Eternal life cannot be given to those that are not followers of Jesus because you can't experience life, eternal life, apart from following Jesus. When I trust him, I want to follow him. All that, all that was meant to be accomplished by the sacrificial demonstration of God's love in Jesus. Listen, God had to demonstrate his vulnerability to get out of, for us to get out of our fear and our suspicion and our guilt and our shame. Let, let, me, let me read you a statement. It's going to sound a little bit shocking. God had to make himself smaller, smaller. I'm going to back to this scripture in a minute. He had to make himself smaller and more vulnerable in order to reveal his greater greatness. There, there, there's a greater greatness. God's greatness, we usually think of it in terms of his almighty power. He's omnipotent. He can do anything that he wants. He's omniscient. He knows all things. That's greatness for sure. But there is a greater greatness, and it is when I am an almighty being, but my power is bridled by my vulnerable, sacrificial love. That's greater. It shows his character is gentle and kind and good. And say, listen, God is forgiving. His problem with offering blanket forgiveness to us apart from Jesus' sacrificial death is he needs to make sure that we have a sufficient deterrent so that we don't think that we can just keep on sinning and it's not going to bring harm to us. We, we, we think about sin too much judicially, that we've broken some penalty and we're going to be punished. We need to think of sin organically. God wants to save us from that which will ultimately destroy us. So, in Scripture, in Scripture, if I could get that that little saying right back up there again. 
God had to make himself smaller. What does it say? In the beginning, John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. John 1, 14. The word was made flesh and made us dwelling among us. Verse 18. We saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Colossians 2, 9, it says, all the fullness of God resides in Jesus physically. It was when God, the creator, took on humanity, made himself smaller, made himself vulnerable, that we could now see that he's not just almighty, he's the all-loving one, the sacrificial lover, the safest person in the universe. And so all that, all that is meant to be uh, accomplished and communicated through Easter. And of course, Jesus' resurrection, it gives us assurance. We not only need atonement, something that brings us back into an authentic union of hearts with God, but we need assurance. Jesus made some astounding claims. He said that he would be the one that would raise all people from the dead. He said this in John 5. He said that all human beings would stand before him to give account for their lives. He said that in John 5. He claimed again and again that he would return and establish the kingdom of God on this earth where God's will would finally, finally be done on this earth the way that it is in heaven. He promised that had he not risen had he not risen, none of those things could be counted upon. Let, let, me, let me do something else. There's a lot of misunderstanding these days about, well, well Randy, you know, you, you, you believe that somebody could die and, and rise again. I mean, if you choose to believe that kind of fanciful stuff, that's fine. I want to share with you as quickly as I can some very compelling, logical evidences, in fact, that Jesus did rise. I, I always do this in an Easter message. I'll try to go quick, and I'm, I'm supposed to do it this way. Here we go. First evidence, the broken seal, the Roman seal. They put a Roman seal on Jesus' tomb. No one would have touched a Roman seal. The Roman army was the most feared fighting force of that day. Evidence two, the empty tomb. The tomb itself was empty. All they had to do to stop the cause of Christ was find his body. They could not. John gives an explanation of the way the, the, the head cloth was laying separate. It sounded like the rest of the wrappings, which were very tight, had just collapsed like a cocoon. Next evidence. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> the soldier's gone. There was a guard put at that tomb. They would not abandon their post. That could cost them their life. The unexplained massive stone was moved. These things are like two tons or more. A couple ladies are not going to roll these things away. The radical change in two skeptics and one enemy. The skeptics, the first was... Jesus' half-brother did not trust in Jesus that he was the Messiah, was not his follower until after he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead when he, when he saw him alive, wounds still in his hands and so forth. He was the one skeptic. The other skeptic, I'll bet you some of you know his name. Who was he? Thomas. The first day of the week, Jesus appears to all his disciples and shows them that he's alive, that he's resurrected. But Thomas wasn't with them. So the next week, the following Sunday, they're all together, and Thomas is like, man, I'm not buying this stuff. He says, unless, unless I can put my fingers in the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side, I'm not buying any of it. And Jesus appears. And what does Thomas end up saying? Jesus says, go ahead, Thomas. Touch the wounds in my hand. And Thomas ends up saying, my Lord and my God. A skeptic was changed. And then an enemy... 
In the book of Acts, you meet a young man called Saul of Tarsus. He is rounding up every Christian that he can. He is standing there while they are stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He's holding their garments so they can get a good throw on their stones. Acts chapter 9, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, meets him, encounters him, and he is converted, and he becomes the greatest servant greatest servant of God we've ever seen since 13 books in the New Testament the Spirit of God chose to write through Paul Saul who became Paul an enemy converted let's look at some more well Sarah you may have to help me <laughs> no no I, I, I went backwards that's all I'm, I've never done this before so I'm just getting used to this gadget um, what some of us may be familiar with is that he repeated his alive appearances it says in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 for 40 days it wasn't just once or twice. For 40 days, he kept appearing to people, showing that he was alive. At one point, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says he appeared to 500 people at once. Changing today's worship. Jews were strict Sabbatarians, but they started meeting regularly on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose. For them to break away from the Sabbath was a tremendously powerful uh, thing for them to do. And then finally, the transformation of the disciples. Remember what happened when they arrested Jesus? The disciples all ran. Peter denies him three times. After they saw Jesus alive, these guys, they challenged the world of their day with the message of Jesus. They changed the world of their day. And within a 300-year period, the entire Roman Empire had to bow to the knee of Jesus. But there's one other piece of evidence that's not up here, and it's more important to you, and it's more important, frankly, to me. And, and that's your, some of your lives have been, as mine has been since age 23, dramatically, wonderfully, any good thing at all that can be discovered in me or my life. It is because of Jesus. And some of you can say the same thing. His spirit, as his spirit reveals Jesus afresh to those that hear the story he transforms hearts and lives right down to this age. These are all powerful, compelling evidences. It is not just some leap into stupidity when we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And that was the message of the early disciples. They went and told people, the one that created life in the universe, he has come, he has revealed to us the truth about God and life, and he rose again from the dead, and he's going to come back someday and establish his kingdom. That was their message. So I want to close today in a little bit of an unusual fashion. I'm going to turn you to a passage of Scripture. It'll, it'll be on the screen in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. I need to kind of set up what's happening. When you get to the book of Revelation, um, which is a hard book to understand unless you're very, very familiar with the rest of the Bible, but it essentially deals with the last three and a half years of earth before Jesus returns. The m major part of the book is just dealing with three and a half years. But in Revelation 4, you have this scene where John the Apostle, he sees God seated on the throne. He can't see his face, just God seated on the throne. And then comes chapter 5. And the, the seals of destiny, there's the scroll, and it has seven seals on it. These seals are going to mean the end of the reign of evil on planet Earth. When these seals are released, it means that finally that prayer that Christians have been praying for 2,000 years and I hope you're praying it because I pray it more than ever at this stage in my life. Your kingdom come and your will be done. God, how we need his will on this earth. That prayer is about to be answered in Revelation 5. And these, 
this scroll with these seals are the, the starting point of preparing this earth, literally demolishing the structural underpinnings of evil on earth so that the kingdom can come and so that Jesus can come and take control of this earth. So that's the scene in Revelation 5. But then this, this word goes out. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to, to open the scrolls? Who's worthy to open the seals and the scrolls? And silence. No one is found, the scripture says, in heaven and on earth. Now we'll pick up. So when this happens, John, the apostle, is crying because he wants to see evil uh, crushed. He wants to see the kingdom of God come. Then one of the elders said to me, these elders, there's 24 elders around the throne of God, they're, they're angelic beings. They said, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's a prophecy of Jesus that comes from way back in Genesis 49, 10, verse 6 and 10. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. It was a little quick. That's <laughs> okay. Um, notice he's the lion. That's emphasizing his power, right? He's able. But I want you to see what happens next in heaven. Okay, so we're fixated on the almighty God, that facet of his character. Then I saw, the line of the tribe of Judah is going to be introduced. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been, what is the word? Slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Then it starts up with this. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb. Why are they saying worthy? Because the almighty lion is the sacrificial, vulnerable lover of those that he created in his image. When they see that, listen, I'm going to tell you something. You'll never, you'll never be a worshiper of Jesus or of God as he's revealed in Jesus until, until you sufficiently get this revelation that the Almighty is the sacrificial lamb who loves you with the safest, most complete, most unconditional love imaginable. Until you see that, until we see that, we won't have that bond that he created us for. Worthy, they say, they scream. It's, it's millions of angels screaming. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. He's worthy of power. He can handle power safely. And wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It goes on. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb notice jesus is equated with the father on the throne be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever it is his revelation as the lamb that makes him worthy safe to have power he's the one we want ruling over our hearts he's the almighty vulnerable sacrificial lover of your soul and you and i can never ever do better than when we utterly put our trust in him and follow him fully and freely and follow him forever can we pray Father, you know each of our hearts and our lives as we sit here today. And some of us, that last passage of Scripture, our hearts were just bursting. We, we, 
want to say it. We feel it in the core of our being. We admire you. We adore you. We love you. We want everyone to know you. We are your people. You have won our hearts. You have won our trust. And then there's likely, Father, there's likely some of us here today that, that we're just learning this truth about you as you reveal yourself in Jesus. And we're eager to learn. I, I pray that your journey of learning will continue until you come to trust in Jesus. And then there's some of you perhaps here today. It's your first time ever being exposed to this kind of truth. It might sound kind of foreign. It might sound kind of crazy. But, but something in you is stirring and you sense that somehow this is the greatest truth in existence and that somehow Easter is the greatest day ever I pray so much for you that this will be the beginning of a spiritual awakening the likes of which happened with me at age 23 and it will change your life in this world and the world to come forever and ever father may your spirit continue working in each of our hearts we thank you for this unspeakable privilege that we could gather today and focus in on your heart, your mind, and your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we go from this place, can we just stand to our feet together? Let's sing this song. Come on, he has no rival. He has no equal. He humbled himself to the cross. Sing this for this. Go, baby. great Sunday, huh? What a great Sunday. Thank you so much for spending your Easter with us. God bless you. God bless you. We hope you have a terrific day. If this was your first time here at FCF, Pastor Randy, Pastor Pete, myself, we would love to meet you personally. We've got a special tent set up outside. If you exit out, is my hair messed up? Oh, thank you. Fix, fix my jacket. Talk about fancy clothes. You all can't tell us. He's got this fancy velvet jacket on today we're going to open that door on the wall right over there on the right hand side you'll exit out that way there's a little sidewalk and pastor randy's waiting out there in a little tent the little guy's waiting in a little tent 
going to be a great time. Would love to meet you. How many of you thought first time you're like, wow, he's shorter than he looked? Hey, that was. Um, and again, if you're watching online, we'd love for you to fill out the Connect card. If you need to pray or talk with someone today, we invite you over to Care Central. Everybody out there online, have a great day. Have a great Easter. And if you want to have a seat in the auditorium, our ushers will dismiss you. So take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>